Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high rise or low rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. Hey everyone, welcome to Mom Jeans. I'm so excited today to be talking to y'all about this episode, Your Child's Food Intake. We are going to be interviewing an amazing dietitian that wrote the book called Born to Eat, which has been influential in the work that I do with my parent and kiddo clients, but also in my personal life in exploring food with my son. We want to give you a little warning that this episode is a little long because we had a lot to ask, Leslie. But everyone, this information is so important. So we wanted to dedicate a bit more time to it so that you can gather a lot of information to help you and your kiddo. Today, we'll be focusing on a few topics around your child's food intake and how to learn to trust your child's abilities around food. I find that a lot of parents are worried that if they truly put the power into their kids, then their kids cannot be healthy and normal eaters. Well, that is what we are here to help you with. I'm going to briefly touch on a few points used in today's episode, and then Rachel can touch on the therapeutic aspects of these points. So a reminder, all children are born intuitive eaters. We just need to learn to guide their abilities. We have talked about intuitive eating in previous episodes, so I won't go into the definition again. But I want to remind y'all that intuitive eating can be used for all ages. Children are born intuitive eaters, and if we as parents can allow them to continue on this ability, then we can truly empower their ability to eat and can give them the gift of a healthy relationship with food and their body for the rest of their life. The hardest part in this process is going to be to trust your child and their ability to listen to their body. And if you are dealing with any sort of diet mentality yourself, good, bad, food rules, or mistrust in your own body, then you need to make sure that you are doing your own work to ensure that it does not get projected onto your kiddo. In our last episode, we chatted about how it is important to model the behaviors we want our children to engage in, which is why doing our own work is necessary in this process. If you are eating one way and not wanting your child to follow in those footsteps, then it will be a challenging process. Yeah, for me as a therapist, yes, I treat eating disorders. And yes, I'm fascinated by this whole relationship with food and the feeding mentalities out there. I still get so overwhelmed by all the different messages out there of how to feed your children and all the different opinions. So for me, the bottom line is the more that we as moms heal our relationship with food, the more we can feed our children easily. I find that feeding your children can be simplified when we do two things. One, let go of fear. Fear that they are lacking nutrients, fear that they will be unhealthy, and any fear of fat. That is fear absolutely gets in the way of allowing our children to be intuitive eaters because it also gets in the way of us being intuitive eaters. Second, let them explore their hunger and their fullness, their taste preferences, their sensitivities, or their allergies. The bottom line is we are their own biggest obstacle. Our fears, our diet beliefs, our nutrition confusion, our under or overeating. When we have peace with food and view food as neutral, fun, and nutritious, they will too. Additionally, we wanted to touch on a brief bit of education around children's nutritional needs and their growth patterns so that it can assist you in trusting your kiddos' intuitive eating abilities. Yeah, I find that a lot of parents are anxious if their child is not eating the full portion that they put in front of them. Or I find that parents are bargaining with their kid, just two more bites of this, and then you can have dessert, or you can be done, or whatever. And again, I'm not saying that what you're doing is wrong, but I want to provide a bit of guidance with this type of direction and dialogue. We're going to link a picture of the weight stature growth chart for children so that at least you can see what we're talking about here. And if you look at this growth chart, you'll see that the first year of a child's life is pretty intense. They are almost having the ability to like triple their birth weight and have a very, very intense growth pattern. 
then you can see kind of a dip and slow in their growth chart, which shows that the child isn't needing to grow as fast. Their weight gain can be as minimal as five pounds per year for the next two to five years, which honestly tends to be where most parents are seeing their picky eater, quote unquote, not be as advantageous with foods, which is when the parents then stress comes in and desperation to get their kids to eat anything. Let's remember that kids can guide their own hunger fullness and us as parents are responsible for providing the food variety in front of them. Their job can then be that they decide how much. If a child's growth pattern has slowed, then they really might not be hungry. And another responsibility for you as a parent is to guide your child on when to eat. So providing a meal and snack structure is very important. This can prevent a child from grazing all day and then not being hungry for mealtimes. As you provide the structure, they can have a better understanding of when meals and snacks will be served and then can practice listening to their hungerfulness. I would provide this same advice for an adult, so really, why wouldn't we do this for our children? Lastly, I want to express that this process can be very challenging and exhausting, but with consistency and trust, you and your child will benefit. Thanks for listening to the intro, and we're so excited to be chatting with Leslie today. We hope you all enjoy our interview. Hey, everyone. We are here with Leslie Schilling. Leslie owns a Las Vegas-based coaching practice, specializes in nutrition counseling for families, those of all ages with disordered eating concerns, and professional athletes and performers. In addition to running her practice, Leslie serves as a performance nutrition consultant for Cirque du Soleil and an eating disorder specialist and supervisory consultant for eating disorder treatment centers in Nevada. With her warm, compassionate, and entertaining personality, Leslie's been featured in media outlets like Women's Health, Self, Pregnancy Magazine, The Yoga Journal, Bicycling, BuzzFeed, The Huffington Post, U.S. News and World Report, and on HDTV. When she's not spending time with her family, you can find her spreading non-diet messages to her clients and speaking platforms across the nation. Leslie is passionate about educating ministry, military, health, medical, and fitness professionals about the harms of typical dieting behaviors. You may know Leslie best as the creator of The Born to Eat Approach and co-author of the award-winning book, Born to Eat. Welcome, Leslie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. I have so many questions about that bio. Cirque de Soleil, this is amazing. What, tell me about that. <laughs> well, uh, when I moved to Vegas and I had a connection and they had a need for nutrition consulting and I did sports nutrition and um, worked in, in, in pro athletics in, in Memphis and you know, one thing led to another and I just get to work with these amazing performers that do all these different types of things. Some of them need nutrition support and I get to work with shows individually. I worked with the new show Run, which is pretty cool. It's at the Luxor. I worked with them this week and just such a great group of people that, um, you know, they're just like everybody else that get, you know, hit with diet culture and have to learn how to take care of themselves in the, in this world. And with the added element of, you know, 10 shows a week <laughs> and training Whoa. and doing these amazing things. So I'm just such a blessed person that I get to work with such an amazing, amazing group of people. And I've been with Cirque for about three and a half years now since I moved. Yeah. Wow. You know, I, I'm slightly scared of clowns. I just don't like them, but, <laughs> and I, I know that Cirque du Soleil, These people are not I know, clowns. I was just saying that, that they are not clowns. I recognize, but there's something about the word Cirque or circus, Cirque of any sort. <laughs> but maybe I should check it out. No, I'm, I'm with you. My daughter's like, I want to go to a show, but not the one with the clowns. I'm like, okay, well, we'll steer clear of O. Clowns, it's a legit thing. <laughs> I totally get it. It is, man. It's just, anyways. I That makes sense. So I guess I never thought about that. But not only are they complete athletes and performers, but they're also wearing the leotards. And so the body image piece absolutely. has got to be triggered. So I've never even thought about that. What That is absolutely a population that would need some... Some non-diet, body love, nutrition counseling. Absolutely. For sure. 
Well, so Leslie, in addition to what you just shared, tell us a little bit about what you do, your your amazingness. Oh. Toot your horn. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I have a private practice, a very small private practice in, in Las Vegas. I'm actually looking at the strip now from my office. It's, it's, it's a cool place. I'm in um, about 10 miles south in Henderson. Um, and I love it. I work with primarily adults now, um, cause my hours don't really allow me to work for, with after school appointments, but primarily adults and families, generally families, and then those suffering with, you know, disordered eating. And again, it's a small practice. And, and so I see people privately and, you know, help them kind of get out of the, the diet cycle. I saw someone this morning and it was just so rewarding to say, you know what? there is nothing wrong with you. There's a lot wrong with our culture and I think you're doing great. And it, it's just such a beautiful thing to be able to connect with people on the level and help them know that like you're what every day you walk out into this disordered culture, um, but you are okay. And we, are there things we could do to make you feel better? Of course they are, but ultimately you're not the problem. Our culture's the problem. And so I also get to, when I'm not in my office, I get to write about things like that for parents and, you know, for us news and world report. And and I have, I think the newest one coming out is on, um, you know, how do you, how do you do have those conversations with kids about, you know, advertisements or comments that come up in so-called safe, safe places like school or the baby channel. There's, you know, a, you know, targeting moms or whatever. So I get to do that. And then I work with Cirque and I've got a couple other writing projects that I'm hoping will, you know, <laughs> you know, take off in the next year. And, and then I try to pick my daughter up most days and have to put really strong boundaries around my time because I was born an achievement addict and workaholic. And so I have to have really good boundaries around that. That's why I have a very small private practice now. I used to one in Memphis and now and now I'm trying to you know practice what I preach and, and have some really strong boundaries around time and self-care and family and connection so for sure that's awesome well yeah so today's episode is um, going to be focused mostly on educating parents and you know talking about the their kiddos food intake so with educating parents and how to feed your kids what is the most common question you get from parents or clients about their child's nutrition gosh the the most common would be like well they why don't they i want them to eat more vegetables can they eat more vegetables and i'm like what do i do to get them to eat more vegetables and i'm like back off on the eating of the vegetables yeah. That's what we that was gonna be my question should we make our kids eat their vegetables oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> back off on the veggies right. you know it's so funny because and i and i think i mean this we might be jumping around but this might be a question you were going to get to mm -hmm. i'm like but you know this is what I do. You know, it's part of what I do. And then I sit there and look at my daughter's plate and I'm like screaming inside, just eat the broccoli. Mm -hmm. But I know, and the research suggests that the more we pressure, the more it backfires. And so offer, 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 offer. And so that's probably the I mean, parents want kids to eat a certain way and there's nothing wrong with wanting your kids to eat nutritious foods. Of course we want them to do that, but it's the pressure we put around it that really backfires instead of just like, let's make sure they have a safe and non-pressure, even positive pressure can backfire. Like, oh, a sticker chart, like all of that. Can, we, we put too much attention on it. And so it's just continuing to offer. And I think it's okay to say, you know, you can try these foods or you cannot, you know, but they're here because, you know, one day you'll like them and taste buds change or one day you won't. And, and that's okay. Everybody has preferences, but just kind of, you know, neutralize the playing field with food and, and, and back off on the pressure, regardless of what the food it is that parents want to eat. That's the number one thing is like, I want my kids to eat more vegetables. I'm like, you know what, me too. And this is what I do, but I'm not going to pressure into doing it because I know that I want her relationship with food and the trust with her body to be very, very strong. And the, you know, the eating of the broccoli will come one day or it won't and she'll eat something else. For sure. I think it's, I think it's important for parents to recognize that, that pressure that we're having, oh, they need to eat their fruit. They need to eat their veggies. They, they need to, they need to 
they're going to figure it out. They they are intuitive eaters as well. And if we just put that pressure onto them, then we're actually taking away their ability to be intuitive eaters. Absolutely. I've heard the argument, the counter argument, that children are not developmentally ready to make those decisions for themselves, though, because they're more whatever feels good right now, instant gratification in their development phase. Therefore, they're not able to make the educated decision to choose the vegetables or the fruit off their plate. And so I'd love for you to speak back to the naysayers and kind of explain, you know, what you've learned in your practice and then also what research you really stand behind as to why we should not push our kids to eat those foods. Well, and and that's, that's just like a parent question. They're like, well, I hear what you're saying, but right. I hear what you're saying, but if I let them be in charge, then they're going to just go down the snack aisle and make all the meals and snacks. They'd eat chocolate all day long. (laughs) Exactly. And my daughter eats a lot of chocolate. We can get to that later, but, um, (laughs) but here's the thing, like, this is the beauty of the division of responsibility, right? So we don't understand that our kids um, aren't supposed to be in charge, right? We, the division of responsibility is, is a gold standard for the Academy of Pediatrics through the, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Um, and sometimes we don't even realize that. And we work in the, you know, with, as pediatricians, dietitians, those types of things, we don't even realize that that's one of our gold standards is to really promote responsive feeding and that the that parents have a role and children have a role. So here's the thing, the kids don't get to decide the menu. And that's, that would be besides, I want my kid to eat broccoli. This, the biggest thing is like, if I let them decide they're going to eat X, Y all day, I'm like, well, they don't get to do that. If we're following the division responsibility, the division responsibility um, is parents decide what, when, and where, and the kids decide if and how much. And what, what we have here in, in most cases, I'd say every, you know, most cases that I work with or, or talk to parents about, we've got this kind of role reversal or people, people in the wrong lane, so to speak, you know, like you are, you're taking over their role and you're letting them take your role. And so let's figure out what that could look like, because here's the thing, of course, my daughter wants to eat brownies. They're delicious, right? Um, but I get to decide when it lands on the plate. They don't, you know, if my daughter's, my, my daughter's, you know, loves brownies and chocolate and she's, she is her father's daughter. She loves it all. And, you know, we will, she was like, can I have a brownie when we get home from school? I'm like, you, you know, you can, a brownie is on our dinner menu. You can have it then. So I'm not saying, no, you can't have it. I'm taking the food that they desire and I'm finding a place for it within my role, which is to decide what, when, where, and I'm taking her preferences in account. So that's the thing. Like we don't let children plan menus or go grocery shopping because they would run them up. Right. I mean, they just, and that's fine because they're children. They don't have that skill. Um, but what we do is we take their preferences into account and then we decide what, when, and where they decide if and how much and helping parents understand understand the division responsibility and understanding that sometimes it's really hard to do. Um, Like you're going to have to sit on your hands or put your hand over your mouth. (laughs) Um, Even for me, you know, so I think it's, I think that's setting that expectation to let parents know that like we get a lot of mixed messages in our culture. Even, you know, you're talking, the pediatrician might say, you, you need to offer more of this, you need to push them to do this or, or whatever, when that's really incongruent with the guidelines and the standards. Um, so it's okay for us to help a parent understand that this is going to be challenging and you might get some pushback from, from other people, but this is the gold standard. And do you, a lot of times food becomes a power struggle. And so I'm curious if you've seen that the division of responsibility quelches that power struggle or if that element of still saying "Mm, not right now but we're going to have it later at lunch or we're going to have it later at dinner if that actually still plays into a power struggle can you just speak on that a little bit you know well temperament matters so much right I mean all kids are different but when I I can I can speak from my experience with my child and clients that I've worked with is that when when my favorite thing to say and there are two favorite phrases it's you don't have to eat that yep you know 
don't have to eat it. You don't want to eat the broccoli or the tree or the whatever you want to call it. You don't have to eat it. You know, you don't have to eat it, but it will, when we serve foods on the family from the family meal, they're going to be in front of you. I don't want, you know, we're not, we don't want them to be disrespectful or whatever. You just don't have to eat it. Okay. You don't have to, you don't have to eat it. The other thing is one of my favorite things to say is, you know, I call my little, little girl buddy. I'm like, buddy, that's not on the menu right now, but let's find a place when we can put it in. And so it doesn't mean that we don't, again, take into account their preferences, but those are the two, the two things that kind of squelch the power struggle. And I always, and I tell my daughter, I'm like, listen, mommy is in charge and daddy, we're in charge of what, when, and where, and you get to decide if you're going to eat and how much. And you know, sometimes my daughter's seven and a half ish now, so she's pretty good at like using things against you. Well, my tummy says, you know, so they won't oh. do that. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, I think saying you don't have to eat it just it, it helps with the power struggle a lot. Here, the the issue comes from when like, like sometimes I'm like, why did I even bother making this right? And I think about that, but. I'm not going to guilt her into eating something or shame her into eating something because I know the relationship with food is so critical that the nutrition piece is, is going to come and, and she's not going to fall apart or be failure to thrive because she didn't eat broccoli on a Tuesday. And right. so, you know, so that's the thing. Those, those, power struggles backfire to the parent's detriment, usually, and to the child. You know, if you want them to eat more of something, they're, if you push, 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 they tend to eat less, according to the research. And the, and the reverse, if you want them to restrict from something, then they might start sneaking and hiding. And, and we want children to, we, we want homes to be the safe place for them to explore food and, and do it safely. Right, and I think that that's like our work, you know, our own work as parents to be like, ah, Okay, I have to take a step back and realize that I put a lot of work into this dinner, but my kid doesn't care. You know what I mean? And right, I I, I just need to take a big deep breath or whatever. You know, it, it is, and it like, and, and we we just have we put this value on it that's not there. It's just the value with the family meal. I think that we forget is the family meal. It's the, the value so many times is, is so much more than the food that's in front of us. I mean, of course we want nourishing food and we want our kids to eat a variety. Um, and that comes over time, but it comes with connection and it comes with trust. And, and if, and if mealtime is all about power and, you know, somebody getting their way at the table, then we've really broken down the beautiful thing of the family meal, which is about connection, again, connection and trust and safe places. I love, love, love that you brought in the word trust, because this is the whole concept of this episode, which is really trusting in your kids' uh, abilities to intuitively eat and listen to their bodies. And, you know, it's like, this is what I do for a living. I'm a dietitian. But even with that, I love my family. P.S. Family, I love you. But like, they do struggle with the fact that like, well, how do you know that he's getting my son? How do you know that he's getting enough? And if you're letting a one-year-old dictate what he eat or not what he eats how much he's eating or you know the portions of all of that I, I just don't think he can we can trust him and so how do you really convey that to parents because I think that you know I'm doing my work with them and educating them and providing the resources but I still think you know there's work to be done but it's really funny because I, I filter my sarcasm a little bit with clients, but I don't mm-hmm. my family. And so I would be like, that's just, it's so interesting that you think that because we've made it for thousands and thousands of years. <laughs> These kids have made it. So I'm super sarcastic sometimes with my own family. Um, I love you too, family. But um but yeah, so it's like, just think about it. Are we making a big deal out of something that doesn't need to be a big deal? And now it's a big deal. So we have to think about the family members that are doing the pushing around that, right? And yeah. we have to think about this transgenerational um, issue around food and restriction and the power struggle. And we have to think about, you know, parents that, or people that grew up with parents that were, um, 
you know, I had food insecurity and, and people still do food insecurity issues or, you know, coming out of the, the Great Depression and, and, and like what that might have been like for them and then how they pass that to their children. And we feel like we have to over control things now on the clean play club. And, and times are different and we have to let we have to let um, parents know that. And what we really need people to know is a child. If you have watched a child eat. If you have watched a child eat from a spoon or not, or self-feed or whatever, and they purse their lips and they turn their heads, they're telling you they've had enough. They have these beautiful, wise, innate bodies that we can either foster or teach not to trust from a very, very early age. And a lot of times when I, when I have a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle caregiver, caregiver, whatever, really make comments like that. I have to back it up a generation or so and, and think, how are you, how is this person raised around food in a way that didn't allow them to trust their, trust themselves? And usually the comments come from a place of this person isn't, doesn't really trust their own body. So it makes sense that they can't see how a child could do it. So that's the beauty of of helping a whole family get out of the whole diet culture nonsense is when they watch a child self-regulate on their own and grow and thrive. And then we can be like, oh, we're born with that. And diet culture and sometimes unresponsive feeding practices can really mess that up for, for a lifetime, even generationally. Um, yeah, I think the whole point of our podcast here is to heal the mom so that generational cycle can end. Because to your point of trusting, if, if as the mama, we don't trust ourselves, and then we also have some unrecognized fat phobia, then we're not trusting our child because we're so worried about what every single bite and food choice represents and means. And so I, I find that when I give that my plate in front of my child and it has the variety of the foods and they eat their roll and they want another roll and they aren't touching the other foods and I I personally go and give them the other roll. They liked that one. They want a little bit more of it. You can tell me if that's not the right way to do things. Um, it's and people sometimes other moms will kind of look at me like, well, they didn't eat their other foods, and I'm go and in my head I'm going because what are you concerned about? Are you concerned that if I give them another carbohydrate, it's going to mean something? You know, they're they're going to maybe their body's going to change, and and I find that a lot of the inability to trust our children comes from a lot of our own fears and our own body image issues. I mean, spot on. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, I'm just laughing while you're talking about the second roll. That's totally, totally my daughter. Last night we made this four cheese, you know, mac and cheese kind of situation, which she loves. And it's so funny because she hated pasta and, and bread and things like that until she's like four or five and then she really got into it. And so she, my husband reminded me that she it's so delicious to her that she will go back 50 times and and then there won't be lunch left so what i do is i take part of it already and pack her lunch you know and then she's like so we had steak and salad and mac and cheese and so she she said can i go get some more mac and cheese and and there was enough in there for her to have another portion. And then after that, I'm like, well, buddy, what's on your plate is all that's left. And so that's where we get to give them what they need. But we still put some loving, you know, loving limits around. You're not going to eat the box of mac and cheese because mommy had that set aside for your lunch menu tomorrow. And so, but yeah, absolutely. I do allow, you know, yeah, you can have, you can have seconds. Um, but kind of after that, I let her just eat around her plate, you know, to, it, it, and usually what she'll do is she'll like pick at a piece of steak or have a piece of tomato and then be, um, and then be done. She's like, may I be excused? I'm like, and here's what I always say. Um, you may be excused, but do you understand the kitchen is closed? So. Oh, that makes me feel better. I say that. Yeah, the kitchen is closed. Do you ever then like cover the plate? And if she's hungry, 
because I find my kids will kind of purposely know that they're learning to work me as in to the beater, <laughs> which is kind of funny. They'll kind of know mama's not going to make them eat the other foods. And so they'll kind of walk away after the foods that they like are gone on their plates. And so what, what I sometimes do is if I can tell there's some sort of manipulation in that, I will put the plastic over the plate and say, you know what, when you're hungry later before bed, you know, I'll, get, I'll put the plate back out, and sometimes I'll add a couple other little things so that's more of like a little bedtime snack, but I'll, I'll introduce the food again. And a lot of times without them me saying anything or them saying, all of a sudden they'll go back and they'll eat all the steak. It's like they weren't in the mood for it then, but if I, I present it again later, so I don't know, that's kind of one trick I've learned is is I made the food. It's on your plate. I don't want to throw it away, but I know if we're eating at 530 and you're not going to bed at 730 and you're hungry again, I'm going to give that plate back out. And I might add a couple other little things on it to make it look fresh again. I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that we eat like 630-ish, like 637. And when, and she's already had a really substantial snack when she gets home from school. And so the kitchen is closed. So we are done. Now, if we had an early dinner and she was up later, I would totally say, if she says, may I be excuse, I'll say, yes, but if you're hungry later, this is what you're going to see. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, that makes me feel better because we tend to eat early. Yeah. And the beauty of this, though, the beauty of this is like we have the division of responsibility and then we have intuitive eating and how the parent merges this is responsive eating. And it looks different for different families. And and I mean, it sounds like you're doing it beautifully for what works for your family. But what you're not doing is saying um, the kitchen's closed and then your child comes up an hour later and says, can I have a bowl of cereal? And you're not, you know, you're not doing this short order manipulation thing, which is great. You're saying, here's dinner, eat what your tummy needs now. If we snack later, this is what you get. And I think that's very, um, division of responsibility paired with responsive feeding and try and allowing the parent to, um, support that body trust the beauty of it is like it can work really well together but it you we have to be responsive parents too like if my daughter woke up at nine or ten o'clock and she was like mom I am really hungry I'm not gonna say the kitchen's like if I really you know like if I really know that it makes sense that I'm like okay well buddy let's go down and like get a cup of milk or have some crackers or whatever and let's go back to bed that rarely happens. But when I say the kitchen's closed, the kitchen's closed. Like I have, she has tried to play me and ask for a cheese stick while she's laying in bed, like 30 minutes later. I'm like, gosh, buddy, I'm really sorry. The kitchen's closed and I play, you know, I don't want to play hardball, but I'm like, I'm in, I'm, I'm in charge here and I'm being responsive. Cause I know she's stalling because she's a stall apotamus. So I'm like, I've got your number kid. You're trying not to go to bed. Um, but it's, really hungry, I would be honoring it. Right. Um, but that, that's res- takes us being responsive and not being scared to respond to that and trust their own instincts. Are we going to get it wrong? Of course we are. Are we going to get it right? I hope we get it right a lot, but we're, we're definitely going to get it wrong and that's okay. And then we learn, we learn, Hey, I just got played. <laughs> I'm not going to do that again. And right. that's just part of it. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think this, hearing it come, you know, Rachel, you ask these questions like you, you're a professional in this field. So, and at the same time, I'm a dietitian in this field, a new mom. And so it brings me to the sense of like, if we still have questions, then what about those parents that don't do this for a living and that this really is confusing and challenging. So just throwing that out there for all the listeners, we do this for a living and we are still learning and figuring it out. But that also being said, if a, a person is stuck in that diet culture and not have not done the work for themselves and, and don't trust themselves and don't have balanced, you know, eating or or don't know what, when, why, whatever for themselves, then this is going to be really challenging. So what do you do for individuals like that? Like, let's say parents are coming to you to work on their kids stuff and you are sitting down with them like, oh, this is what we got. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and let me just say, 
what human in diet culture walks unscathed? Not one, you know, it's, it's so funny. I work with, you know, I'm super privileged to get to work with Katia Rowell, the feeding doctor every once in a while. Um, and she did, she edited and gave us feedback for the manuscript before Born to Eat went in to published. And, you know, that was something she, she really talked about was, um, you know, just, we said very few people make it to adulthood unscathed. And she was like, red mark, nobody, <laughs> you know, nobody makes it. And so if you walk in this culture and you've probably had really trusted sources give you diet culture information because diet culture is sadly in safe places, churches, schools, um, medical offices, dietitian offices, nurses office, therapist office, you know, diet culture is in really safe places. But I think once we call it out and see it for what it is, we can really start to work on it. Um, and I love to help a client or say to client, I'm like, listen, I'm going to help you see diet culture. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I'm sorry, because, <laughs> you know, you're, we, we literally swim upstream. Um, and it can be hard sometimes, but you're not alone. You're not to blame. And we're, we're all, we're all walking through this together. And, you know, it feels weird when we're doing something countercultural and sometimes just letting your kids listen to their bodies seems countercultural. And so it makes sense that we can't do it for ourselves. For, so, and that's kind of the thing that we talked about in Born to Eat that was so important to me. It's not just a book about like baby led weaning or responsive feeding, you know, it is, and it's not, it's about this is the period where the control alt delete or the reboot from diet culture can happen because you can witness it with a child. You can witness that they're, we're born with these cues for self-regulation. You can witness that we're born with body trust. And it's a beautiful time to help a family kind of reboot and get rid of the diet culture nonsense, or at least be highly aware of it. Um, and then start to do our own work and be willing to say, and that's such a motivator for parents, I think, is to realize like, I struggle in this way and I don't want that for my children, which means like, like Rachel, you were saying earlier, you can only take someone as far as you've taken yourself. And that's not just true for helping professionals. That's true for parents and, and whatever. I mean, thank goodness we've, we, we have the privilege to do some of our own work in those ways. And I always have parents start with intuitive eating or reading some Ellen Satter work. Um, and then, you know, I say, why don't we work on, um, you know, I can switch the appointment to I came in for family nutrition and planning meals and my kid would eat the broccoli. So why don't we work on helping you make peace with food? Because that's, that stuff's contagious. And that's what we want. Hey, listeners, Rachel and Tina here to share with you an exciting announcement. If you have been enjoying this interview with Leslie Schilling and want to check out her book, Born to Eat, you can find it on Amazon and other places books are sold in print, audiobook, mp3 cd or kindle version the awesome news is that we have partnered with her to do a book giveaway over our social media pages you can find us on instagram at mom jeans the podcast or join our facebook group mom jeans the podcast to find out the details about the giveaway but hurry because the giveaway launches the day after the podcast episode drops and is only open for six days okay back to our episode Do you want to, because I feel like we skipped over it and I don't know why, can you tell us a little a little bit about Born to Eat? And we got so excited, no. but yeah, you brought it up. So let's, <laughs> let's dive into that. Well, it, it's really funny because people are like, so you do sports nutrition and you do this and then you do this book about baby feeding and I'm like, how? and I'm like, you know, it's all the same stuff responsive, intuitive eating, feeding your body is, is kind of a lifespan kind of thing. And it really came to be born to eat started as kind of the title of um, my blog, like 10 years ago. It was like, I just have this conviction and passion that um, we're really born with this, you know, innate wisdom to, to feed ourselves. And, and I believe that we're, we're born with this innate wisdom to feed ourselves and feel ourselves well, so we can go out and do great things and, you know, um, make connections and do whatever we're, whatever, live our purpose, right? And, 
And so, um, and then I had my daughter and I had a friend had given me the book, Baby Led Weaning by Jill Rapley. And I was like, thank goodness, cause I'm not making baby food. And it was me just being like lazy. I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> nothing, no, nothing against people who enjoyed it or wanted to do it. I'm just like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. And, and I'm married to a, a super duper geek and my super duper geek husband um, I say geeky in the most nice way, but yeah. And so my, he starts, we start actually doing a little research about responsive feeding and I already knew divisional responsibility. I was so lucky early in my career to be, to do a training with Ellen Satter. And, and so we were doing all the research on, you know, baby led weaning and he was like, it just makes so much sense. And him being super geeky, his, his area is kinesiology, exercise science and nutrition. So we're kind of very similar. Um, and so we're like, well, well, totally, that's what we're doing. I mean, why? And, and the recommendations are to start solids around six months when developmentally appropriate. And then we were talking about like, well, this is not a solid, a pureed sweet potato is not a solid, you know? And so, and then it just, it made sense. And we did this approach with, um, with our daughter and my sister did it with her daughter at the same time. And then Rebecca Scritchfield, one of my really good friends was calling and doing it with her daughter. And then Wendy Joe Peterson, my co-author had her daughter Anya and, the, and we all just had this like group about feeding and helping each other out. And then Wendy Joe's like, she knew I had already started the proposal for Born to Eat when I was feeding my daughter. She was probably six, somewhere between nine and 12 months. And it just fizzled because life happens, right? Uh -huh. You get busy and then your kids start crawling and then the world stops because you have to make sure they can <laughs> crawl off stairs or something. And then, um, and then Wendy Joe, she just texted me one day and she was like, so are we going to do Born to Eat or not? <laughs> And, and I was like, yes, yes, we're going to do it. And so it just came full circle. And she's got this such rich culinary background. And I have this kind of eating disorder therapy, you know, therapy background. Um, I was kind of brought up by therapist in my training and and it just it just worked beautifully. And we we unearthed the proposal and kind of revised it and really wanted it to be about responsive feeding and not just baby led weaning you can you can do you can be responsive with spoon it's really what works best for the family and, you know really promote that and give some and and bring back foods of the family because that's what the real definition um of complementary foods really is foods of the family and we wanted to bring back this family meal um and, and, and show the whole family that intuitive eating is something that can be fostered through the lifetime, you know, through a lifespan. Um, and then put in the part, chapter 10 is one of my favorites. And that's the part about, you know, born to eat is a family affair. If you want a born to eat child or a responsive, in, uh, you know, attuned child, then the parents have to be the same or be working towards it, right? I mean, we don't have, nobody's perfect. We can at least be aware and working towards that. And, and, and that's how Born to Eat um, came about. And it's been, gosh, it'll be in May of 2020, we'll be, it'll be three years old and it's on Audible and in Spanish now. And, you know, we're really, we're proud of it. And, um, you know, Evelyn Tribbley and Elise Rash have reached out to us about it and, and our, um, I think, um, you know, are recommending it as kind of something to foster intuitive eating in children in their fourth edition. So we're just, we love how it just, um, it can really help reboot the family. And that was the goal. Well, so to kind of touch on something you had said in that description, how intuitive eating is like appropriate for all, and we're trying to do it across the lifespan. Um, is there a de developmental age or phase where you think that intuitive eating is less appropriate or any particular kiddos that you think, hey, wait, this really isn't, well, this isn't recommended? I will say there are pieces of intuitive eating that are always with us, right? We know when we're hungry, we tend to know when we're satisfied. So I think we can use the principle of intuitive eating as the parents, right? We use the principles to support this innate 
self-regulation system that children already have. And this is the beauty again, where that responsive feeding comes in. So we, we do our division of responsibility. We try to honor hunger and pay attention to our children and their needs in that responsive feeding. So yeah, I think it can, it, it works together very, very, very nicely. But then you have children who really don't have cues sometimes. Um, and then we have to be a little more scheduled. It's like, and it's not a lot, it's not that different from when I'm working with a, an athlete who's going into a show and super high intense, you know, performance from say seven to 11 o'clock and we have to do preemptive eating. And so, yeah, their hunger cues are off maybe because of high intensity or because they're, you know, wearing some type of harness that, you know, not the time for, you know, a big meal. It doesn't feel very comfortable. So I think we just have to, it's so individualized, right? We can't just say, oh, oh, listen to your hunger, but we can, but we got to help people figure out what that might be like because they've ignored it so long or didn't believe that they even had it. And so children who are on certain types of medications, you know, we, we can kind of blunt the impact. And when I'm working with a parent who's, uh, who has a child that might be on certain medications that kind of reduce appetite um, and kind of turn down those hunger signals, that's, that's what I say. I say, listen, the hunger's there. The hunger is there because the body needs fuel. We know that there's this need for fueling, but we might not feel it. It's like, it's like when you're, you're on a conference call with a lot of people and you mute it and then you realize you're kind of not paying attention. You just stand, they call your name. You're like, oh, whoopsies, I'm supposed to be on this conference call, but I was, you know, multitasking and not paying attention. The, the mute button, we hit the mute button with some of these medications. And so we, we can be a little more scheduled. And that's when we use our time logic. I'm like, well, prior to this or in general, and that's where we, we used to eat like around this time and this time and this time, and you used to do this, or um, time logic. I use time logic with my people a lot. Like time logic tells me it's been three hours since I ate. That probably wouldn't really carry me that long knowing my body. Um, so how can we plan things in? And, and the beauty of that is I think sometimes when we're a little more scheduled with eating, when we have some appetite issues, and this can happen generally. I mean, I think when I'm really anxious, my appetite changes. And so I have to be a little more aware of looking at fueling my body in a scheduled fashion as self-care. That's not always how it works, but I think it can happen to a lot of us. Um, and then kind of helping a parent, you know, have a schedule and not, we're not talking crazy spreadsheet or anything like that, but here's when we offer it. And here's how we can talk to children. Like, I recognize you're not hungry, but sometimes um, we are, our volumes turned way down. And so having that scheduled eating or structured eating can help turn the volume back up. And so, um, yeah, there are definitely times when it's harder than others. What do you, how do you guide parents whose children do have processing disorders or other diagnoses where it really does get in the way of they're eating. I mean, my son has some sensory processing issues and will only eat the soft carbohydrates unless I sit down and really guide him. He also has ADHD. After three bites, he is up out of his chair and he is running out the door. And I'm going, okay, you need to sit back down. <laughs> You're not done yet. And it's not because I'm teaching him not to honor his signals. It's because he's so overstimulated. He can't sit in his chair for more than three seconds. So, you know, I'm, I'm and I, I definitely have some friends who work more with kids on the spectrum and how they have to make foods so much more calculative or different in order to really help the the child eat nutritionally because the child struggles with those skills. So I'm curious if you coach parents in who have children like that a little bit differently or if you just tweak things. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? So what, what we want to do is support autonomy the best way we can, right? If we're supporting autonomy with a child, um, hopefully that will help them as they move into being an adolescent and a, and a teenager and an older adult. Um, I think that is really, really important. And reducing anxiety around mealtimes is really important. Um, and so it, like I mentioned earlier, so pressure increases anxiety. And so positive pressure, negative pressure those pressures regardless can can make a child that's easily overstimulated more anxious and more stimulated so i think that's one thing we have to do is think about like supportive family meals 
Um, and we can still use division of responsibility where, you know, if, if a child is, is able to have foods that we know that are accepted, then they can serve for themselves and then have the opportunity to try new foods. Um, the other thing I do is I recommend Dr. Katia Roal's books, all of her books. They're amazing. She has Love Me, Feed Me. She has Extreme Picky, Helping, um, helping Your Child with Extreme Picky Eating. And she has a newer one that's more of a teen book um, that a lot of people can use with their therapist and and their nutrition therapist, their dietitian, that can that can be helpful. And there are things that you can use in the book, like um, practices. But it's really about increasing their own trust and supporting their autonomy and reducing pressure as much as we can. And and not and like thinking about our goals, it's like just eat the broccoli, you know. Um, thinking about our goals and like, does that really need to be the primary? the primary goal right now is the primary goal is sitting five minutes at the table instead of three. And how can we re reduce anxiety and pressure in a way to make that, to make that work. And it's really hard and all parents are different. And, and I even reach out to uh, Dr. Royal, um, the feeding doctor, like on, on our fed cases, you know, so, you know, really hard cases. That's not my special. That's my sister's specialty, who's actually in Texas. Um, that's my oh, cool. specialty, who's a speech um, language pathologist. But um, you know, that's not my specialty. But I do know autonomy is really, really important, and then reducing reducing the pressure, and then really thinking about. Um, giving more time for some of these goals, and she actually does. Um, she does do some one on ones with dietitians and, and parents and stuff. And when, like I had a really hard case here and I was like, you know what? I don't think I'm the person you need to talk to. I think you need to just call the feeding doctor and have a couple sessions and see if she, cause she does such a crazy intense history there. Like, you know, there's always, there could be something that's, that's really, really in depth history that could be really, really helpful. And she's also doing, I don't know, um, this might be, something for if there are dietitians listening and you know parents and such in the area she's doing a responsive feeding um workshop there in texas in may i signed up me too i'll see you there oh yeah so, and, and my I sister know Rachel, it's in i want to come you should come yeah come. it's in may and my sister's coming too that's why i'm going to and, and and just do it because it's it's there's just so much more to it right and you'll have parents that take their children to typical feeding clinics that um aren't necessarily um responsive or even child-centered and so um so yeah it's it's hard and I, I just say that's hard and we do the best we can but we try to offer 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 and reduce pressure and support autonomy the best we can I'm, I love your answer, too, because a big piece of it is find the resources out there that speak to that while still upholding the values that you're covering. You know, just because your child has some of these other alternate issues or different types of eating habits doesn't mean that you have to tighten the reins even more. There's other resources and, and tweaks you can make while still holding on to the values that you're speaking on. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's the thing, like I learned, like if you watch how some children are like that are going to feeding clinics, if you watch how some of them are, um, the therapy, I'm using my air quotes, but my, the therapy that they're receiving, it is traumatic. And so we really have to, we can help guide parents to resources that do help children kind of trust themselves and the key the key throughout the, all of this is, is trust and, and autonomy and how we sit on our hands when necessary as parents and providers and, and just try to help people trust themselves and, and you know provide a little gentle structure when necessary with like making sure we do have those structured meals when children are taking medications that might kind of mute the appetite and and I think that's appropriate to talk to them about to say I recognize you might not feel that right now um, but it's my job to offer this to you knowing that it's been a long time since you've eaten and so if you want to sit down with me and have a conversation um, while you, you know, enjoy your meal or don't that, you know, that would be great. And it's just like, you know, taking away the pressure, but letting them know that you're doing your job as a provider. 
the therapist in me kind of goes to the piece too of teaching your children the difference between their physical hunger and their emotional hunger. You know, I have a daughter who is out of my three, she's my most intuitive eater. I can give her a donut and a thing of broccoli and she will eat half of each just because that's what she feels like. <laughs> Whereas my sons are wolfing out the donut run from the table. But um, so she's my child that I can, you know, quote unquote, trust the most or it's more it's most easy for me to kind of just let her do her thing um but she's the one who'll come to me all the time and go I just my body's in the mood for a lollipop <laughs> and I'll go she, she's getting sneaky and um and I'll I'll think about you know kind of what she's eating throughout the day and then I'll and I'll think about maybe you know maybe it is you know based on what's going on but if there's something going on where I think you know what I think you're just bored and you're not really sure what to do, and mommy's in the middle of doing something, and you're kind of just needing connection with me, then sometimes what I'll say is, you know, it's not time for that lollipop, but did you want to go play the game? Turns out she was not starving for that lollipop, you know? But I think part of it is is me also teaching her, you know, sometimes I'll say to her, are you physically hungry, or is there a feeling in your heart that you need to maybe address instead? And she'll go, I just, I just don't feel like going to bed, or I'm just tired, or... Um, you know, I'm just bored right now and nobody's playing with me. And turns out it had nothing to do with the snack she was asking for. She just didn't have that emotional language to identify it more properly. So that's just my therapist piece that I'm throwing in there. No, and, and that's wonderful. And I always tell you, like, our daughters must be um, separated at birth because my, my daughter's <laughs> like, you know, my tummy's really telling me it's a good time to have some ice cream. And <laughs> funny because and, and a lot of times it's like I'll do they like, know what we do for a living and how to work us I know I'm like <laughs> she is just like digging it in she knows she knows uh -huh. how to get me she knows how to make my hackles go up too so um so I'll say oh buddy that sounds so yummy and then the mean sarcastic mom and me says but the kitchen is closed what <laughs> what can we do instead it's not that I won't let her have these things it's just sometimes I know like really what you're right what she wants then is connection and the other thing I've explained to her too I'm like listen I love that your body craves things and you're so aware of what your what your body's telling you that's really cool but usually you're when you're attuned with your body it starts with like am I hungry yes or no <laughs> you know and I'm like or no. And then we, then we go to the food, you know? So I told her, I'm like, I got your number kid. I got your number. But, and I, and I love that you are so in tune with your body and I lollipop sounds really good. Let's, you know, we can have one when we take a walk to the mailbox or whatever. So just I'm real careful not to kind of, you know, good, bad her food when, when she, she, Sometimes I'll even say, it's not about the food right now. It's that we're trying to get out the door and we're going to be late. So, you know, I'm totally honoring the fact that you're hungry and we'll get a snack when we get there. But this is not a power struggle with me right now about your food choices. This is about the fact that right now we're playing a game and I don't really feel like getting up. <laughs> or right now we're trying to get out the door because we're going to be late for school. So I'm so sorry your body wants some Cheerios, but my, my body needs to drive the car. <laughs> so I think yeah. sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes I just, I, That's so I, true. I try to break down any of that, like you're saying, the good, bad relationship with food and just say food has its time and place. And I'm not getting an argument about that piece, but I'm also going to teach you, you know, how to keep it in its place. And then also what your emotional signals are and what else is going on for you. And just, just address a different whole component of their lives and their little body signals. And that's so, so important. And I will say, I don't want to speak for every parent or dietitian or whatever listening, but I can speak for myself. I was not raised to check in with my emotional state. You know, that was not a thing. It was, you know, <laughs> it was just not a thing. And thank goodness and years of doing my own work and years of working with so many wonderful therapists and nutrition therapists, um, knowing like now to say, buddy, what's going on? Like, you know, are, are you okay? And a lot of times you're right. It's, she wants my attention. She wants connection with me. And, and I think it's something if we, if we have the, and it's a privilege, listen, it is an absolute privilege for me to get my, to pick my daughter up and spend time with her. Like I get to, um, it's a privilege for me to get to say, Hey buddy, you know, why don't we go for a walk to the mailbox? And in that time that we have together or to, you know, 
go do something is absolutely a privilege. And so I think no matter where a parent is in their their ability to to you know have time, big chunks or little chunks or whatever time with their kid, we can check in with like, how does your heart feel? I love that you had that question. Like, what are you feeling in your heart? Um, and, and that's beautiful. And I think it really teaches kids that feelings matter and feeling their feelings matter. Um, and uh, gosh, if we could raise kids that are really attuned to what they feel, what an amazing next generation we'll have. Thank you again, Leslie, for sharing your wisdom with us. As always, I'm impressed with the dietitians that are available in our community and the knowledge they have. I just want to express to parents that this process is difficult and we understand that your children are your prized possessions. We only want the best for y'all and therefore want to provide the best resources as possible. Those resources are for you so that you can trust in your child's ability to express themselves appropriately. Our takeaway question for you mamas in this episode is, What work do you need to do to trust your own relationship with food and therefore trust your child's relationship with food? And just a reminder, if you feel that you need more assistance, we are linking ways to connect with Leslie or reach out to Rachel and Tina to provide more options. Thank you so much for listening to another episode and we'll see you next time. This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LaBoy. Just a reminder, this episode is not a substitute for therapeutic counsel or nutrition advice. Thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast and join the Mom Jeans the Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mommy. See you next time.